Today in the garage, we have the one and only, the warrior, Reed Rasonic. Reed has been practicing criminal law since 1984 and is currently the managing partner of Rusonic, O'Connor, Robbins, Ross, and Angelini LLP, having done hundreds of contested trials and even more bail hearings and dozens of bail reviews. He believes getting client bail is both the most critical part of a successful defense and a successful practice. Reed spoke to us about the importance of his client's liberty and his practice in achieving it. Whether you're driving a Ram pickup, playing your CF Martin, or prepping for an application to recuse the judge, let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get a tune-up. Welcome, Reed. Welcome. I mean, thanks for having me. Yeah, <laughs> It's an honor, actually. Uh, we've had the opportunity to spend time on a long prelim together, yes. uh, and I've watched you from afar, whether I was a Crown attorney early in my career, and I saw excellent advocacy uh, for many uh, young individuals who... Uh, was one of the reasons why I stopped being a crown. Um, <laughs> but in any event, you always fought for justice. Well, you were pretty legendary yourself. So so thank you for coming. I know we're going to talk about bail hearings today. And bail hearings are absolutely important. And I want you to share with anyone who's listening why and what your thought process is as to how critical it is and what strategy you take. Well, why bail matters, aside from the fact that... Uh, it ain't jail. Um, and it's really, that's really not an aside because as you and I both know, if anything, um, jail has gotten worse since we started to practice. The conditions in jail are worse. Uh, what it, what jail does to a person, um, whether they're acquitted or convicted is worse. Um, so it's a, it's a desperate fight now to make sure that a person gets bail. It's always been true that it was critical in terms of giving the person the best chance um, to defend themselves. Everything from uh, being able to prepare them to testify uh, so that their appearance is better, their health is better when it comes time for their trial. They can assist in um, uh, finding witnesses. You can take them to the scene of the allegations and uh, have their benefit, have the benefit of their insights into, into that as well. Your preparation time obviously is much more in, in your office or at their place, uh, their home, than, than it would be in jail. Uh, it's just, there's a million reasons why you got to get them out. I can imagine just wanting to sit down with your client in your office, and that's a true luxury uh, because it will also assist with their mental health so that they can approach their defense and, and, and be able to convey things uh, that maybe they would be fearful to talk about when they're in jail. Exactly. And the, the lack of privacy, you never know who's listening. Um, you never know, um, you know what's happened to them just before they've come into the room, what's going to happen to them, what they're afraid of, what's going to happen just after they go out. They're usually much more, obviously, much more relaxed in, 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 a, in a setting that you can create the environment as opposed to the jail creating the environment. So it's six, 6 o'clock on a, on a Monday, and you get a call from the police that your client's in custody. Where do you go from there? Un under arrest? Yes. Well, we, we <laughs> it doesn't come at 6 o'clock. It comes it's like it's more likely at 6 a.m., as you know. Um, where do you start? All right. The, the first thing is 
um, in the short time that you're going to have an opportunity to, 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 well, first of all, even before you speak to the client, try to get as much information as you can out of the officer. Try to get as much of an idea of the allegations uh, as you can out of whoever's calling you to tell your, your, your clients there. You want to, um, if you can, the, the, for me, the, the best way to get somebody out is to articulate there's a defense. Nothing addresses the, the three grounds, that uh, the primary, secondary, and tertiary grounds, more than you've got a defense. So you've got to know the allegations to be able to articulate there's a, there's a defense to them. So get as much as you can out of the officer. Get as much as you can out of the client. Um, obviously, in terms of information, you've got to learn, um, first of all, contact information for sureties. And that's a new challenge that, that in, in the old days, they'd rhyme off numbers for us, but now they can't remember the numbers because they're all on their phones. So then you have that tricky, you have that tricky problem of, you know, do you ask the officer to let them have their phone or access their phone, not knowing whether or not the phone is going to give uh, you know, give away a case or give, you know, create evidence against them. But the, the, there's a, more and more they don't know the numbers of their mothers. You know, it's on my phone or, or, or their girlfriends, etc. So you've got to try to get that information both to get sureties and to get paid. Yes, you do. And um, when you get this information and you're able to uh, talk to the officer, um, what do you think uh, is the best way to try to get a release from the station or talk them out of holding an individual overnight or uh, in a case that's, for example, not a 469 offense where they're going to be held for sure? Well, getting the, getting the officer to talk is sometimes the, the first challenge. Um, sometimes they're, they're just, they, don't, they resent the fact that, they're, that they have to give them rights to counsel in the first place. They're just doing it perfunctorily. Uh, it's not necessarily an officer who has any say in the matter. You want to try to speak to the officer who does. You want to try to talk to the officer who you do get to speak to and try to convince him that this is a person who's um, uh, capable of being released from the station. For example, if it's a domestic allegation, uh, if the person's charged with uh, you know, assaulting a spouse or a girlfriend, uh, one of the things that is going to be key to whether or not they get out that night uh, from the station on a form of release is whether you can convince the officer that they have an alternative address to go to. Um, there's also pitfalls to watch out for because sometimes they're going to be releasing people and you're going to, without you even um, trying to persuade them, for example, on a possession for the purpose. And then you've got a possession for the purpose of trafficking and then you've got to worry that um, the, it's not just a case of the copper being a nice guy, that the client has made some kind of arrangement with the officer that he needs to be out for to, uh, to meet his uh, side of the bargain. So now you're dealing with somebody who's um, got pressures on them and you have to have a frank conversation with them about how to help them cope with those pressures because you might be talking to an informant now, not just your client. And that poses problems uh, for you potentially too because you know someone who's desperate enough uh, will say something about anybody. There are so many situations that uh, cause us every single day to worry about, you know, are we doing the right ethical thing or not? And so if you had a client released um, or the police release a client, you find out that the person is potentially a confidential informant, 
how do you govern yourself? How do you make sure that you don't get into any type of uh, difficulty? Uh, well, my, my experience with that situation, and it happens not infrequently in my particular practice, because I get a lot of um, people charged with drug offenses and firearm offenses. My particular uh, experience is maybe nine out of 10 times, they, didn't, they really don't want to be uh, informants. They don't want to carry through um, with the, whatever promise that they made to the officer if they were released. Um, so you have to help them um, cope with the, uh, the pressures that can come afterwards uh, from an officer in charge, uh, pestering them after. And you've got to make them understand that they're going to be the focus of further investigation as well. I'm just going to draw you back a little. Is uh, I, I know that I hear uh, very frequently today that uh, council will call a police station because uh, they're aware through a family member that somebody's been arrested. Yeah. And the police somehow think that they don't have to put you through to that individual. Yep. Big uh, problem. It is a big problem. Uh, how do you convince that officer that uh, it's their duty for you to provide uh, proper advice to a client and a client is not defined by the fact that uh, you were called by a family member or not? Well, um, you, it's, it's not easy. Um, has been doing it now for, for years and now I find that uh, starting to mimic that practice. Um, you know, the, the tack that they take when you call in is, well, the client's spoken to duty counsel, the client hasn't asked to speak to you. Um, so, you know, there are a number of different things you can try. Say, look, what do you got to lose? You know, um, you've got, uh, you know, you know, letting me speak to him, there's no, what, what's the harm that's going to befall you uh, in your investigation? And it's pretty obvious that the harm that they're afraid of is that they're going to shut up, that they're going to, you know, stop, uh, um, the confession they might be in the middle of or the interview they might be in the middle of um, so you know even just keeping the the coppers on the phone gives the the, the client a chance to regroup perhaps um, I've done a lot of things to try to cope with that I've sent the the family member down to 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 make a fuss at the at the front desk um, I've tried calling officers that I know uh, in the unit or in the division and try to get them to persuade the officer to let me speak to them. Um, and then ultimately, though, you want to set it up for some kind of challenge of, uh, down the road to the admissibility of the statement or the, uh, the, the, the abuse of the, whole, uh, of the whole prosecution. You might be able to set up a stay application because you were denied that opportunity. I'm waiting for the right case myself. Have you had, uh, have you had that come to a... I'm able to talk through it, ask for a staff sergeant, Good for tell you. them that they're being ridiculous. Um, I, I, I can be a bully on the phone. Uh, and I take notes. I send letters. Um, if I can whip off an email to somebody or, or, or fax a letter, anything that I can show that there's been something, an item sent in case there is a statement yeah. and the person's been denied a right to counsel and counsel of choice and uh, and uh, then, like you say, that ultimate uh, application that needs to be brought because there's been a change. I think it goes back to Regina and Singh, where um, when it comes to uh, the the right to silence, um, yes, that is possessed within the client, uh, but they have to have knowledge about it. Yes, 
And so there's been a, a, a change in the way I think uh, 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 people uh, and interviewing t uh, of individuals in custody has occurred over the last 11, 12 years. There's, there aren't too many judges who won't be repulsed by that tactic. And if the more you can um, play it up uh, as having been a disadvantage for your client, the better. If it were a bail hearing that's going to proceed potentially tomorrow for your client, um, you've received some information from the individual, the officer, family members. What do you do to prepare? Well, the crucial thing is to make sure that you're going to have prepared sureties there. And one of the things that you learn over time is sometimes it's better not to rush. Even if it means, like if, you know, if an arrest comes in, um, three, two, three in the morning, uh, there may not be enough time to get a surety ready to testify the next morning. Um, so if it has to go over a day to make sure you're going to get the person out, it's worth it. Uh, if, if, you, if rushing jeopardizes the chance of release, it's worth it to put it over. Um, and to get the right sureties there as well, if, it, if it's uh, a hearing that's going to be determined by the, if it's a hearing that's going to be determined by the success of the of the sureties, so I want an opportunity to, to speak to the sureties and explain um, what role they're going to be testifying to that they're able to fulfill, and I also want a chance to investigate the best possible uh, supervisory uh, proposal that I can make. Um, we're talking about situations where, where release is in jeopardy, where, you know, if, if it's a situation where release is likely, uh, and you'll, you'll, you'll learn after time and, you know, what kind of charges, what kind of situations, what kind of backgrounds are likely to be consent releases, what ones aren't. And it'll also depend on the jurisdiction. Different uh, jurisdictions have different idiosyncrasies that way. Um, but if it's going to be a contested hearing, You've got to speak to the sureties. You've got to prepare them. You've got to make sure that they understand what their role is, that they could be everything from just someone who makes sure that a, the person remembers their court dates to a, an out-of-custody jailer. And they've got to understand and be able to testify forcefully uh, to that role. Do you find that uh, since Antic that uh, the idiosyncrasies are um, being eliminated and there is a a fair standard uh, uh, across the country or across Ontario, at least uh, given that uh, bail keeps on coming up again and again and again at the Supreme Court of Canada, and I'm not sure if it's necessarily trickle down. We, that, that's a rhetorical question because we both know it does. It it, it uh, varies from from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. There's some jurisdictions in Ontario where where bail is the norm, um, consent releases are the norm on very unrestrictive terms, non-restrictive terms. Uh, and there are some jurisdictions where, um, you know, if you want to get a consent release, um, and this is the problem with all the, all the, the fine pronouncements that come down, um, and this is where we're guilty, it, you know, we'll, we'll negotiate a strict consent release rather than roll, roll the dice and, uh, and fight for um, a lax one where the Crown's seeking detention. It's not often you get a client say, yeah, go ahead. If you lose, I don't mind waiting an extra month for something, a charge that may never end up in jail anyways, but I'll wait an extra month where you get me less restrictive bail. But then Zora, I think, is calling, if I, if I read it right, Zora is saying, you know, that what should happen in a situation like that where there are a term or two that are at issue, that should be the, the contest. And uh, I've actually had a justice of the peace during COVID 
who said that, you know, um, you know, when the Crown was seeking detention, uh, the first question the JP asked was, is this, is this because of a disagreement in the conditions that would be required? And, and I said, yes, I jumped on that. And it came down to two conditions and we fought over that. And the Crown did, the Crown did admit that um, they would otherwise release except for a disagreement about these two conditions. Wow, that sounds promising. And let's hope that that continues Hopefully. to be the uh, the way that bail bail hearings will unfold, not only for uh, individual liberty, but the public has to understand that that you know this is one of the most important parts of the process, and they expect uh, that uh, a fair hearing will be held, but they also want something that's efficient. Yes. So uh, we're all playing our part. I love I love COVID bail, so because. I think the JPs or the judges who are doing them are much more relaxed in their in their uh, house coats at home, and uh, I, I just find it's much easier to secure releases right now. Aside from the uh, you know Zora and other other cases that, that have come down, it's I, it's a nice way to do a bail hearing. Now, uh, for bail hearings, you, you talked about making sure that you have a, uh, a sufficient and, and good surety when it's required. Um, how do you prepare that charity? Well, first of all, I, I try to explain to them, depending on the, most of the time where it's a contested hearing these days, it's going to have to be an out-of-custody jailer. They're supervising a curfew. They're supervising, um, you know, very strict conditions. So they seem to grasp, most, most people grasp that, you know, we're, we're trying to say that jail's not necessary because you're going to fill the role of a warden. And... Um, uh, most people easily grasp that and uh, understand that they, they not only have to, uh, you know, um, know the conditions that they're going to be, that I'm asking them to supervise, but also that they have to sound tough enough and firm enough that they're going to, um, you know, call the police if they're not enforced. And, you know, you, you get them, you have to get them ready for the million questions you've all heard the Crowns ask, you know, why would you call the you know, you want to be the one who asks, why would you call the police on your own son before the Crown does? You want them to be ready and say, well, look, you know, I'd rather he be in than getting in, in further allegations that, uh, that, like this. And another thing that's very difficult and important for a, a surety to understand is their innocence isn't the issue at the bail hearing from their perspective. It's almost better that they sound like they think it happened. You, on the same token, you want to make sure that they don't find out that it happened from the client in, before the bail hearing, if it did. Um, you want them to approach it from the position that this happened. And uh, I know this is what I've got to do. I understand this is what i got to do to make sure it doesn't happen again. And that's a hard thing for especially someone who's inexperienced um, with the criminal justice system, system to understand, that you're not really beginning with a presumption of innocence, you're beginning with a presumption of guilt, and what will it take to make sure that, that there won't be a repetition uh, if, they're, if they're released to your supervision. When it's come to bail hearings, have you had any crazy hearings, any fun hearings? Oh, you, 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 we both know that the... The real lunacy takes place in the in the in the heat of a of a bail courtroom, because um, you haven't had time to work with the client, so they'll do, they'll they'll do unexpected things. They're, I'm never calling the client. I can't remember the last time I did, so you don't spend a lot of time with them. Um, and uh, and sometimes they'll they'll pipe up, and have comments as the allegations are being read. And you just got to remember to tell the client 
that he's even though he's not testifying, he's going to be watched, he's going to be listened to, he's going to be judged on on how he comports himself. Um, it's interesting you say you never call a client because there is a debate out there. I know I've called clients. Sometimes I don't know if it was the right thing to do or not. <laughs> well, did it, you get them out? <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, then. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, uh, uh, I would assume uh, that they would accept the plan that's being put together. They would agree to the terms that's part of the plan. You and I are both old enough. Do you remember Sidney Harris? Yes. Do you remember what he used to say? That the, the standard questions would come out if, you know, if— if if you have a curfew, will you obey it? If you if you have to come to if if you're told to come to court again, will you come to court again? And Harris would lose it and say, "Of course he will." <laughs> what, what do you expect him to say? You know, if he needed to learn another language by Tuesday, they would. Yes, right? exactly. Right? What do you want them to say? Yeah, and it, but it's interesting because uh, I, I guess there is a debate out there. Uh, I I don't know what the right answer is, except it's what is successful for yourself and. Understand what the pitfalls are if you actually do call a client well, if you, who opens up the door to something that you don't want to open. Yeah, you, you, there's just too much of a danger, I think, for the, you know, the client to say something that's going to hurt them, especially when you can control the flow of information better through other people. Um, and then you know, you're not exposing them to any kind of cross-examination, even if they get the answers right, but they're not ready to, to present themselves in a, in a good way, like you know, how to, you know, to be frank. Uh, to be forthright, you know, if you haven't had that time to, to work with them, I'd be scared to call them. And I, I, I find that I can get everything I need from the sureties or from submissions. People don't realize, uh, a lot of lawyers, young lawyers don't realize that they, what they say, as long as it's based on, uh, you know, uh, that it's credible and reliable, they've made some kind of test, that they can say that. They can say things about the client that they don't have to call the client to say. They can say where he goes to school. They can say what job he has, uh, as long as you've made some kind of uh, um, uh, confirmation of the information or done some kind of confirmation of the information. It's unique because the code actually says there is a reduced evidentiary threshold. Yes. And I know before we started the interview today, one of the things you indicated to me was you know, one of the first things you do as a lawyer is you need to read Section 515 of the Criminal Code. That's what we tell articling students, 515. And the second thing we tell them is read Casey Hill's judgments on bail procedure because he covers a lot of this um, beautifully on, on what the accused can or counsel for the accused can do at a bail hearing. Um, so... Uh, I understand. I, I can imagine a case where, see, I don't. I don't deal with a lot of guys who um, are charged where the allegations are of like bizarre antisocial behavior. And I can imagine if you have someone who's charged like that, you want them. You might want them to testify to see, so the judge sees that they're really, you know, um, uh, mild mannered and and uh, you know capable of understanding conditions, that kind of thing. I can imagine there's a scenario. I don't. I you don't. You don't get a lot in drugs and guns. And I know that uh, part of your practice over the years, you've represented people on very serious charges, charges involving 469 offenses. If, if I can just jump over to, uh, how would you uh, send a message to young lawyers uh, that uh, may be assisting a senior counsel preparing? 
for a bail hearing in the Superior Court, what the, what should they do? Well, Superior, is, I think this is, again, the most important rule for any bail hearing, any bail review. You have to articulate that there's a defense. There are very few judges who won't bend over uh, to release, if possible, if you can articulate the, the, the reasonable possibility of reasonable doubt. Um, you know, you, you, whether it's calling a witness, um, whether it's pointing to uh, weaknesses or apparent weaknesses in the Crown's allegations, whether it's asking the Crown, uh, you know, during a, a quick bail hearing and at, at the first level, you know, asking the right questions the Crown won't be able to answer that should be, the answer should be in the file if the, if the allegation was as uh, clear-cut as the, as the synopsis makes it. Um, you know, two or three, one or two good questions that expose a weakness will get your guy out. And for the superior court, for the superior court, you really have to, uh, you really have to be able to articulate, especially when, when in the things you're, you're doing is change of circumstance on a bail review. You've got to show that, um, you know, that since the time of the bail hearing, uh, disclosure has been given or, or information has come to light that show that kind of change of circumstance, there's, got, there's a defense here. And, and we've all heard uh, judges repeat the words of Casey Hill, this is not just the reshuffling of the deck. Right. On the, on the yeah, deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You've got to give them something new. And I think there's nothing better than strength of the case because that'll address all your grounds. How about some interesting ethical dilemmas uh, that have hit you uh, during a, a, a bail hearing? Well, one of the one of, we we've sort of it, talked about it—the necessity of confirming information you've given before um, before you uh, cite it. Um, I've been lucky myself um, not to have had that happen, but I've had to deal with a couple of people who were caught uh, having been given really uh, bogus information not having had sufficient time or not taking the sufficient time to investigate it, or even just a call and then putting it out there and then the Crown catching them over a lunch hour on it. So you don't ever want that to happen. I mean, when the, when the client tells you something that's entirely improbable, be cynical. You know, if he, if he talks about a, a job that, that, that he's been doing that's a nine to five and all the allegations are three o'clock in the afternoon, that's a pretty good sign to, to call the employer and make sure. And, uh, you know, there's too many different ways to confirm things quickly now with, with your phone before you advance that information. Because, you know, what, what do they tell us? Uh, a reputation takes forever to build and you lose it in a minute. Yeah. In a millisecond, it can yeah. happen. And it gets around. Like, if you, if you try to deceive a, uh, if you look like, if you simply look like you tried to deceive a judge or a justice or the peace, they talk and uh, it'll haunt you. You know, it's interesting because uh, being a fierce advocate, advocate doesn't mean you have to be rude or nasty or anything. You can be strong in your position and you can be quite civil at the same time and the other side will respect you. Yeah, you have that's 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 Never one of the bar, right? It's one of the lessons that you learn over over the years. Yeah, sometimes it, uh, firmer and quieter is is much more effective. And the other thing is to is I mean, with trials and bail hearings, is to vary your tempo. You know, different and and not only during the course of a bail hearing, but different bail hearings require different approaches. Some require a heavier touch. Some require a lighter touch. Think about that before you start. You know, how do how do what tone do I want to establish here? Absolutely. 
We didn't talk about the money yet. No, no we yes. will talk about the money. <laughs> Before we talk about the money, some quick questions. Uh, what do you think of the tertiary grounds? Well, the tertiary grounds, the, I think, you know, it's, it's, redund- everyone, it's completely redundant. If a person can be uh, safely released in the sense they'll come back, they won't kill the witnesses and they, they're, they're, they're not going to have a chance to repeat. How could a reasonable member of the public possibly mind uh, their release except in the most extraordinarily uh, unpredictable type of or, or bizarre type of criminal action? But again, you can, I go back again to the strength of the case. You can, you can cripple a, a, a crown tertiary ground argument by arguing that it's not a strong case. There's a real doubt here. I, I always have been uh, mystified by the uh, balancing act uh, when they look at the, you know, uh, the, uh, the maximum sentence for a particular charge. What if your client's been overcharged? <laughs> like, how do you beat that? Yes. Well, there's a strength of the case. There's an opening for strength of case. Yeah, they, you know, he, he might, you might be able to, the case is stronger here on, a, on an included offense, but not on this. And I, I don't think a lot of judges like the tertiary ground either. A lot of JPs, I don't think they like the tertiary ground. And if you give them, again, uh, something that's wrong with the case or apparently wrong with the case, um, it's going to get over that hurdle. Now, you go to law school for a number of years, you know, accumulate debt. Then you go to law society, and I know I'm a bencher there and doing what I can, but uh, the cost of entry to become a member of this profession is high. And by the time that you're in the profession, now if you start as a criminal lawyer, you're not generally working for those that have a tremendous amount of means. How do you get paid so that you can earn a fair living? Well, it's too long a question in general, but one of the... One of the um or the answer would be too long, and you know, to give it in general. But in terms of bails, there's an opportunity. That's where you want to make sure you're paid, because um, you know the you, you, the incentive for the client to pay is urgent. I mean, look, look um, when I was a young lawyer, I used to do a lot of things for free, and um, you know, over time, you 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 learn the the folly of that of that practice. Um, you have to, if you want to be, help people, you got to get paid. If you want to be able to help the next person, you got to get paid by the previous one. And bail hearings are one of the places where people have an incentive to pay. You've got to be, it, it begins with being set up, especially now in COVID where everything's remote, where you can't meet the client and receive cash, for example. You've got to be set up so that they can pay you uh, by credit card or pay you by uh, Interact or, or e-transfer to a, to a trust account, whatever. But you got to make sure you have the vehicle for the client to pay. You got to make sure when you're speaking to the client, you're not just getting numbers for sureties. You're getting numbers for people who can pay for a bail hearing. Um, if anything, you know, charge, um, you know, get as much as you can upfront for the bail hearing, and do the 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 initial uh, steps after that without an additional charge. Do set dates and 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 the crown pretrial and review the initial disclosure. But get as well paid as you can for the bail hearing. Um, what that amount is will depend on you know what the market will bear, and it, you have to. That's an art knowing uh, what you can get for a particular uh, bail hearing. But you want to get paid for the bail, um, or if you're going to d- take it as a you know it, any legal aid bail is essentially a loss leader. 
but don't necessarily turn your your don't necessarily uh, turn your back on a on a legal aid bail hearing because it could lead to a, a very lucrative case, uh, even on legal aid if you get the person out. Problem with not getting paid uh, privately um, for a bail hearing and uh, losing is that you may never see the client again, or your money, or, or certainly not, <laughs> I certainly not your money. Yeah. It, it's interesting because, like you said, maybe you, when you were younger, possible through folly, your own folly, that uh, you do things for free. Yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, there is value in your work. Sure, and but it, and and I'm not, that's not to say that that's not to say that there aren't times when you're younger. You should, if you can afford it, you should do things for free for the experience. If it comes to, or you should take the risk of doing something for free. Uh, for the experience. There's nothing like, uh, um, you know, a, a hotly contested bail hearing. Uh, you got to do, you got to do a ton of them before you're going to be any good at them um, or really proficient at them. So if, it, if one or two you don't get paid on and, you, and you know, you're still paying the rent and, and eating, you know, don't kill yourself if you didn't get paid, but um, take the experience as, as your remuneration, but try to get paid. One of the one of the other advantages, I mean, other than the experience, is you know it, you can ingratiate yourself to a judge or a justice of the peace to step in and help somebody if duty counsel is busy with something and you can and help with a bail uh, or speak to sureties out in the hall. Um, you'll be remembered for it. Um, it's a good way to build up your uh, your reputation as well. One of the the uh, I guess somebody told me this once, and it's always stuck with me is. Uh, there's a difference between a client's ability to pay and desire to pay. <laughs> and if they don't have the desire to pay, run. The 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 hardest thing to 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 learn and to or in my it took me years to learn and to realize that clients were better healed than you thought they were. Um, you know, I, I still think that poverty, by and large, is the primary reason uh, why people uh, get into trouble. Um, but uh, some of them have overcome poverty better than others getting into trouble. Um, and again, especially if you, you know, the ones who can afford to pay won't allow you to do more who can't afford to pay as well. That is important because, uh, like you say, it, there's a, a tremendous ability to uh, gain, you know, a, a great reputation with the court uh, to step up when you have to. But at the same time, you have to remember to step up for yourself. Yeah. Or you won't be around to step up for anybody. Yeah. And uh, do you want to share any war stories with us? I don't. I, I'm the worst war story person. I, I I hear stories about my cases from other people, and I I barely remember. But I do have a a, a bail hearing war story, if you like. It's also an ethical lesson. Um, my very first bail hearing, I shouldn't have done because I was an articling student, and it was an indictable matter. And uh, it was a Friday afternoon. Do you remember uh, Justice um, oh, Opper at Finch? I, I remember the name. Okay. He, you're a little bit after me, right? Just I, a, I was called in 92, graduated in 92. Yeah, so you're just, a, I, I started, I was called in 89, April Fool's Day, 1989. And I think he might have even been gone by 92. But he ran uh, the bail court. This is back when... Uh, was it 306? The first courtroom you got to, I know they renumbered it, at 1000 Finch. They did everything there. They did the bail hearings. They did um, uh, set dates. Anyways, the crown was John Struthers. 
it was my co-counsel now, and we're on a trial right now, a remote trial in front of Justice Kelly. Um, and uh, Judge Hopper was the was the judge, and it was late on a Friday, and he would go over for the weekend. And we, I'm calling the office trying to get a lawyer to come up. Nobody can come up. Everybody's busy. So I get it into my fool head to do the bail hearing because I'd prepared it for the lawyer. Nobody seemed to mind that I was doing it, and he was detained. And without thinking, um, that weekend, uh, back then, um, you know, if, if we, at the point where we were in our article and we knew what we were doing, I prepared the bail review. And I put it on uh, for the following Friday. It was, she, he should never have been detained. Um, and uh, James Locke here um, was going to do the bail review. He picked it up the night before, and um, he figured out what I had done. Uh, he was furious, and there was a big debate whether they would report me. So he goes in the next morning and to do the bail review, and it's Justice Whaley. Um, do you remember Justice Whaley? Yes, I do. Yeah. Okay, very strict guy, very <laughs> often very angry guy, um, very um, big temper. And uh, James began by apologizing profusely. And bless his heart, Whaley said, uh, look, Mr. Lockyer, that's all very interesting, but I'm more concerned why this guy was detained. And uh, proceeded to tell the Crown that, you know, you guys go off and draft terms because I'm releasing him. So I dodged a bullet there. Um, nothing ever came of that. But um, that was a lesson in, in, in patience. That was a lesson in, in obeying the rules. That was a lesson in you're going to get caught out. Uh, that was a lesson in you're not as smart as you, as you think you are. You're not as capable as you think you are. You're not as ready as you might think you are. That was a lot of lessons. Um, but fortunately, uh, fortunately, he got bail. Now, I know you've shared a lot of lessons and you've mentored so many through the years. Um, a career in criminal law can be a long career. What advice do you have for people that are thinking about doing this, they're on the fence, uh, how wonderful your career has been? I, my, my career has been wonderful, but I've been, ex you know, I, I acknowledge I was extremely lucky. Um, I articled for Pinkowski's. We had um, more work than we knew what to do with. It was just, we, we, as, art, as articling students, we would go days sometimes without sleeping and loved it. And then, you know, we had trials um, every day once we were lawyers. We didn't have to worry about the, the, the work just poured in. Legal aid was much better back then. Um, you know, it was easy to get the experience. We, we did marijuana trials, simple possession marijuana trials. It's, it's one thing when you can cut your teeth on, on charter applications where, where, you know, the jeopardy is, is, that, uh, is that slight. Um, and it's hard now because it's hard to get the experience. It's hard to get the, the income isn't as good until you really establish yourself. Um, and, and we didn't come out. What, what, I, what did you pay for law school? I paid probably 20% less because it would have been... I was able to work in the summers to afford yes. the full tuition. 100%. Which would be impossible today for any young student. 100%. I, 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 we got a, I had a job at General Motors in the summer in Oshawa. I was rich. You know, I, I had no debt when I came out of law school, um, which is a good thing because of what Minkowski's... <laughs> the articling salary. But, uh, uh, you know, it was the most fun. And I, I don't... We can't recreate that, that same experience now. Um, so I, it's going to be harder for a, a new person. Um, and if they have the big debt, it's scary. 
Um, and you know, we, we try, uh, we've tried different formulas at the, at the firm to make it possible for, for young lawyers to start out. And I know that, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the older lawyers, or I guess we're, I guess we qualify as older now, <laughs> have tried, uh, uh, you know, everything we can to encourage it for younger lawyers, but it's not easy. You have to love it. You have to be prepared to suffer. On the other hand, the judges are better than they ever were. The resources to do a case, um, you know, are better. Uh, the and, and I think the one thing that you and I have been the benefactors of is it's a good bar. It's a good bar. And I hope that it still is a good bar. I know we're both playing our part to make sure that people feel comfortable, can reach out to other lawyers. Yeah, it is. A, it is. It is a good bar. You know, everyone's got. Um, you know, you're going to meet a lot of individuals with a lot of strong individual tra- traits. That's how you can be good at this. And you, you know, some people are going to appear intimidating, but um, uh, or you know, appear arrogant and rude. Uh, but, uh, if you, if you ask them, you'd be shocked how, how many will, will sit down and, and tell you everything they know. I think I've never been turned down when I said, can I ask a question? I just have this ethical yep. problem or I have this legal question. Can you help? Yep. It's been wonderful talking to you today. It's been a real pleasure. Um, I always ask, uh, my guest on this podcast, video cast, uh, to plug themselves and, uh, tell us where, People can find you. No, I, I, I I'm, I'm busy enough. It's, <laughs> I, it's, uh, you know, I plugged the firm. Um, you know, we've got a lot of uh, young lawyers that uh, um, I'm excited about. Um, you'll find us on the website, okay. www.criminaltriallawyers.ca. Pick anybody but me. Thank you for joining us. Don't pick O'Connor either. He's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout out to our fantastic producers, Xenia Sethna and Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com.